Joseph D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist Spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. Joseph James D'Angelo stands accused of being the Golden State Killer, which includes the crime spree known in Northern California as the East Area Rapist. The crime spree in Southern California known as the original Night Stalker, and a series of burglaries and break-ins in Visalia, California known as the Visalia Ransacker, which culminated with the murder of Claude Snelling. The Visalia ransackings, believed to be among the first of suspected killer Joseph D'Angelo's crimes, were committed from 1974 to 1975, during the time that D'Angelo was working as a police officer in the neighboring small rural town of Exeter, California. Uh, we kind of have a backdrop of uh, Sequoia National Park, the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, I mean, right up the hill are the giant sequoias that everybody kind of knows us for. In 1976, the Exeter Police Department hired a new police chief who was coming from Visalia. And that's when Joseph D'Angelo coincidentally left the Exeter Police Department and took a job as a patrol officer in Auburn, California. Auburn uh, in the 70s probably was right around 10,000 people. At that time, I think we had uh, 18 sworn police officers. In the early 70s in Auburn, we would have two one-man units. Sometimes on weekends, busy nights, you might have three one-man units, but uh, that was about all that we had. Auburn Police Chief Nick Willick supervised D'Angelo in August of 1976, about the same time the East Area Rapist attacks began in nearby Sacramento. As we know, the East Area Rapist was active from 1976 to 1979, with his last known attack to be the aborted attempt in Danville in July of 1979. The original Night Stalker made his first murder attempt in Goleta in October of that same year, and by 1986 had killed 10 people. So how do Joseph D'Angelo's movements correspond with the timeline and locations of the Golden State Killer's numerous crimes? How is law enforcement connecting the dots to build a case against their prime suspect? I'm Joke Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina. And we're comparing the movements in life of suspect Joseph James D'Angelo to what law enforcement knows about the crimes committed by the Golden State Killer, with help from retired Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes, who spearheaded the team, who ultimately identified suspect Joseph James D'Angelo, Reggie Ellis and Paul Myers from the Sun Gazette, who've done extensive research on Joe D'Angelo and his time as a police officer in Exeter, thanks to the archives of their local newspaper, and former Auburn Police Chief Nick Willick, who supervised D'Angelo during his time on the police force. Now retired Contra Costa County Chief Investigator Paul Holes spearheaded the team that identified the alleged Golden State killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hey, guys. Uh, Paul, we wanted to get into some of the timeline overlaps between Joseph D'Angelo's life and the many crime sprees he stands accused of. When you first started looking into this man, you're obviously looking at his age. How did that line up with your thoughts on GSK? When was Angelo born? When we're looking at this as an unknown case, we're having to rely a lot on the victims, the living victims, to describe, you know, how old they thought the offender was. You know, and when, when this guy first popped up as the East Area Rapist in 19, mid-1976 in Sacramento, the victims were all over the map saying, well, he's like an 18-year-old teenager or he's as old as 30. So we had a fairly broad window in which we thought the Golden State Killer's age would fall within. I know for me, and a lot of people thought he was younger uh, and that he was possibly a teenager or in his early 20s at the time he started up in Sacramento in 1976. 
I always thought the guy was a little bit older based on some of the sophistication he was showing very early on in those attacks. The sexual maturity that he was showing with how he was uh, interacting with these female victims and just this boldness and level of competence that he was showing. And he did not uh, come off as a as a very immature teenage boy just starting off on a rape series, to my mind. So when D'Angelo popped up, you know, he was older than what most thought the Golden State Killer would be, but he was well within what. I felt the Golden State Killer would be. So his age at least was within what I thought was, okay, this, this sounds right. You know, he's, he's going to be somebody who's a little bit more mature and more competent in his abilities at the beginning of the Sacramento cases in 1976. So being born in November 1945, it would put him at 30 when the East Area Rapists pre-started. That's right. That's right. You know, and so if you're thinking those are these his first cases, you know, that's a little bit old for somebody to start a a serial rape series. It's not unheard of, but it's one of those things where you go, I wonder if he's done things before, you know, in his early 20s. Now, D'Angelo is born in New York. He's the son of a military father, uh, and his dad's Air Force career brought the family to California. First Southern California, then made their Air Force base in Sacramento. Why is that Air Force base significant? Well, when the East Area Rapist uh, started in mid-1976, he his first attack was in this Cordova Meadows neighborhood in Rancho Cordova, which was right across the freeway from the from the Mather Air Force Base. And as these attacks proceeded up in Sacramento, he seemed to have early on a desire to reoffend within that Cordova Meadows neighborhood. He's showing comfort in that neighborhood. And it turns out that five of his first 15 attacks were clustered in this small Cordova Meadows neighborhood. So D'Angelo having that father that was in the military stationed at Mather Air Force Base, he has familiarity just from his youth of that particular neighborhood. And so it would make sense that when he starts doing these types of sexual assaults, he's going to go someplace that he's comfortable with. In fact, I believe that probably as a teenager, he was out there peeping in this neighborhood and prowling and, and is very was got very comfortable as a teenage boy moving around Cordova Meadows. And then after school, uh, he enters the Navy, gets his own military training. Uh, this was 1964, well before the draft, but son of a military man, this probably was right on track with what was expected of him. Uh, what have you learned about his military service? Well, my knowledge at this point is based on what I knew uh, prior to my retiring. And, you know, he was in the Navy. He was assigned on multiple ships uh, while he was in the Navy. Uh, Some of those ships did go over to Vietnam, but he never, you know, saw combat either on the ship or on land um, and was doing mechanical kinds of jobs while uh, on these ships. But he ultimately fulfills his obligation uh, to the Navy and ends up settling back in the Sacramento region and starts attending Sierra College up in Roseville, which is just immediately north of Sacramento. Right. So his college career uh, starts at Sierra College and then he goes to California State University in Sacramento. What was he studying? He seemed to be very focused on a specific career. He he was studying criminal justice. Um, So you know, criminal justice is a major that many guys, even to to this day, many individuals to this day will will study and pursue a degree in because they want to get into law enforcement. Uh, so even while he's up and doing the criminal justice studies, he's also interning at uh, Roseville PD. Now, at the time, you know, obviously his dad was a career military man. Um, he kind of gets out of the military. Is it Is it just kind of like a natural next track for someone who comes from a military family, has served in the military to then go into law enforcement? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, the military training, uh, law enforcement uh, is generally is a paramilitary type organization with a very rigid chain of command, very rigid policies and procedures. 
there's uh, a lot of discipline that is needed in order to be able to just make it through the police academy. So guys that have that military training, they have got and understand a rigid chain of command. They have to follow policies and procedures. This is very much the same with law enforcement. Law enforcement really is a paramilitary type of organization. So guys that have that military background, they generally walk into their initial law enforcement exposure, usually at a police academy, with a little bit of an advantage because they've already kind of been there, done that, and now it's learning more of the law enforcement aspect versus somebody new like me going into the police academy going, oh my God, what is going on here? As I'm, you know, being, uh, you know, brainwashed into this this disciplinary type of structure. That's funny. So after uh, he graduates with a bachelor's, he leaves the Sacramento area and enrolls in the police academy in the Visalia area at the College of the Sequoias and starts work as a patrol officer in Exeter in May of 1973. Now, May of 1973, this, again, all of this is before for any connected criminal activity to, to the Golden State Killer, correct? Yeah, in terms of uh, verified criminal activity. You know, we do have the Cordova cat burglar that Ken Clark from SAC-SO kind of keyed in on that seems very likely to be him before he goes down to Exeter. Um, but at this point, when he starts out at Exeter down in 1973, it is before anything that we have attributed to the Golden State Killer right now. We're going to pause the Paul Holes interview for a minute. Uh, We'll catch back up with him later in the show. Uh, Next up, our local newspaper publishers, Reggie Ellis and his editor-in-chief, Paul Myers, and they reveal what they discovered in their Sun Gazette archives about D'Angelo's life and career during his time in Exeter. We have with us from the Sun Gazette, publisher Reggie Ellis and editor-in-chief Paul Myers. Welcome, guys. Hey, how are you guys? Doing good? Yeah, doing great. Very, very exciting time to be working on this project. Yeah, no kidding. For us, too. So a little bit about the Sun Gazette. Your paper covers Tulare County, which includes Exeter, Farmersville, Lindsay, Lemon Cove, Ivanhoe, Plainview, Tulare, Three Rivers, Visalia, and Woodlake. Um, Tulare County is a very rural area right smack in the middle of California, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then did you tell us that you guys were the biggest dairy exporting county in the U.S.? That's correct. Yeah, people are very proud of that here. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I I never heard that before. That's a lot of cows. (laughs) <laughs> yes, there are. I, I, there's not more cows than people here, but there's it's it's close. It's close. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of smell too that comes with it. I, I imagine. Yeah. And do you get used to it? Yes, actually, you do. It just kind of fades into the everyday odor. It, it uh, the, the the common phrase is that's the smell of money. Okay, I like it. There you go. <laughs> Very nice. Now, also, obviously, one of the main reasons we're speaking to you here today is that as uh, the Sun Gazette, you guys also own all the Exeter Sun archives, which was the local paper in Exeter, California at the time that Joseph James D'Angelo was working there. Yeah, Exeter Sun um, ran. Uh, we're still essentially the Exeter Sun doing business as the Sun Gazette, but it's been running continuously since 1901. 1901. Wow. That's insane. (laughs) So what was it like on April 25th, finding out that the biggest story in the country had an origin in your town? When we found out there was the Exeter connection to the Visalia Ransacker, um, that's when we kind of just started hitting the archives and digging up as much as we could. So Exeter is a small town. It's a small town now, tiny town in the 70s. What would bring residents to come and make their home there in general? So Exeter is one of those, you know, if you were looking for kind of like the the town that was kind of the quintessential small town America, um, and it kind of prides itself on that now, but that's essentially why people came here. Um, but most people came here because of family. So they already had a family member that was living here. Maybe they're transitioning to a new job or looking for a new opportunity in California and they already had someone living here. So Exeter was kind of this place where, well, I I know someone there and it seems like a nice town. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful little town. So, okay. Bringing it to Joseph James D'Angelo and his family, when did they first show up in your archives? Um, From what I saw, and I don't know where that would lie within Exeter's son, but 
D'Angelo's mom married um, his stepdad in Tulare County. Yes. In 1965. Yes. So was it the stepdad that had connections to the area? I, I found that kind of difficult to figure out. Uh, essentially, you know, we knew that he had family here. Um, he visited a couple of times before he actually made Exeter kind of his permanent home throughout the 60s. But um, he definitely had a strong connection to the the family that was here. Otherwise, I don't I don't think he would have come here all the way from New York. Right. And then in 1969, D'Angelo's sister moved to Exeter, correct? Yes. And does she still live there? I believe that she does. Yes, she has a uh, she has a you know family uh, that she started here, and you know, complete with husband, kids, and grandkids. Right, and then I believe you guys showed us an article that appeared in 1971 where Joseph James D'Angelo actually attended his sister's husband's birthday party, and that's what yeah. brought him as a visitor. <laughs> Well, yeah, th- those are pretty common in the newspaper of that time. Small town newspapers, um, you know, really here up until the last maybe eight to 10 years, um, we were news, small town papers cover things like, you know, 100th birthdays and, uh, you know, family reunions and class reunions. Those were things that actually made it into the paper and not just kind of a blurb like in a in a listing it was like a photo with a caption <laughs> and a small story i know so the, 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 these are things that definitely want to make it in usa today <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now now in 1973 joseph james d'angelo starts work uh with the exeter pd um and also attends uh, the college of the sequoias uh, yes. that's a police academy at the college of the sequoias so um that's probably he was doing something there um with the academy as opposed to actually attending as a as a college student so the idea is that he's probably doing um the police academy at the college of the sequoias possibly early 1973 and then starts work what day was it in may may 18th of 1973 correct yes um, and then somewhere in 1973, um, you guys did a, a profile on him, and it mentioned that he was going to marry his to-be wife, Sharon Huddle, um, back in Auburn. Was there any other mention of, of his family, really, in the archives? Not really. There wasn't a ton of mention about the family. Um, there might be some other mentions of them. You know, we... We've kind of looked through a lot of the archives, but that doesn't mean that we catch every little thing on every page. So, um, but there are very few mentions of kind of the D'Angelo family after he comes on to the extra police department. Awesome. So then 1973 is a pretty kind of uneventful career life for D'Angelo. Um, and then early uh, 1974, about a year on the job, he's promoted to daytime investigator. Can you tell us how that came about? Um, so basically... He there was a lot of break-ins that were kind of happening in uh, '73, um, and, and they were your basic break-ins. There's nothing stood out about them necessarily, but they did have a couple on the same. They had four on the same night, and um, you know there there wasn't a definite pattern, but sometimes there seemed like there was some similarities. So I think at that time the police department was probably considering, you know, that they may have some a, a group or a individuals who are committing a lot of similar crimes. So D'Angelo, you know, they, they were kind of working him into an investigative role because he had more education really than any other officer on the force, even though he was the newest, um, he had the most extensive background and in, in training and education. And as far as, um, you know, attending college coursework and things like that. So now that brings us to 1974, D'Angelo is promoted to daytime investigator. And somewhere in there in the month of April are what Visalia Police Department has confirmed as, as the first Visalia ransacker incident. Yes. Now, as a daytime investigator, I'm assuming that would have meant his days opened up a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, once he kind of didn't have a, a, you know, for lack of a term, a beat to walk on the street. You know, that gives an officer of that time a lot of autonomy to kind of follow whatever leads they want to follow and structure their day however they need to, to, to do these more, you know, longer term investigations. And then how did he do as a daytime investigator? And, and I'm, I'm getting you to 1975. We have this anti-burglary unit that gets set up. How does Exeter PD go from, OK, we have this designated investigator to now we're really blowing it up with a much bigger unit? 
Yeah. Um, you know, basically, D'Angelo is kind of becoming a star of the department at this point. He's making a lot of arrests, uh, especially on, on burglary cases. And um, uh, the interesting thing we found was a lot of the arrests they were making for burglaries, they were kind of pinning on teens from Farmersville. Can you explain the Farmersville-Exeter relationship? Yeah. So um, Exeter and Farmersville were two different towns, but they shared a high school in Exeter. So Farmersville um, tended to be a more migrant farm worker community. Exeter tended to be more white, middle-class, affluent community. And uh, kind of the Farmersville kids were treated differently at the high school. They were considered kind of, they were looked down upon a little bit. And you can still um, see some remnants of that to this day. So, you know, if you have an Exeter police officer, and Farmersville had its own police department, but if you had an Exeter officer saying like, oh, yeah, you know, these Farmersville kids, it's, uh, it's probably them. I'll go round up a few and see, see what they say. Nobody in Exeter kind of would have questioned. They was like, oh, yeah, it probably was those Farmersville kids, which, of course, isn't true. But that, that was, definitely would have been kind of a sentiment of, of that era. So D'Angelo is um, making a lot of arrests. Farmersville kids. And how did this anti-burglary unit come about? Oh, so um, in uh, January of 75, the city council voted to form a team between Exeter and Farmersville. And uh, the issue was pushed by then police chief Henry, you know, mostly most people called him Hank, Hank Fry. And um, Hank Fry had been kind of brought about after um, the resignation of a, the, the former police chief, Ray, Ray Watkins. And um, there was a lot of issues with the police department, with finances and, um, you know, having enough manpower to do things. And so I think this was kind of a way for the police department to say, like, look, we need to do more. Why don't we why don't we partner with an other agencies, which at that time was not very common in order to solve, you know, our our burglary crimes increasing. And we're talking just the burglaries in Exeter, Farmersville area, right? This does not involve the ransackings, the, Vail- the Visalia ransackers committing in Visalia, the next town over. No, these are just um, burglaries that have been identified in Exeter and Farmersville. Those cities still work a lot together because they are small cities sharing resources. And this had nothing. They were not investigating the Visalia ransacker case at all. So D'Angelo is assigned to this unit. Was that an obvious decision? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, they I don't they didn't have really any investigators in the department. They had beat cops and then you you know your higher ranking guys who were kind of an administration and they needed someone who hadn't been there long enough to be in administration but was, you know, smarter than the average cop, let's say. Yeah, and I and I want to add too is that you know, when we're talking about, you know, this era as well, you know, and and what we know uh or what we've learned from uh uh, Ward was, you know, it's not as if D'Angelo had an attitude problem. You know, it's not as if he ruffled a lot of feathers. He was kind of the guy that came in, did his job, as most people could tell. And so when you have that guy who appears like he's a good worker with a good work ethic and has an education, you know, you're on a fast track of sorts in a small rural town. Yeah, he kind of had um, the way I describe it, kind of a nose to the grindstone attitude, like a no nonsense. Like he came in like, Hey, what are we working on? Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, wherever the guys might be, you know, having, having a water cooler conversation about sports or families or whatever. He, he wasn't that guy. He wasn't, he wasn't there to kind of fraternize at all. He was there to do a job and that's the way he came off. And I think the higher ups saw that as good work ethic. Right. And he's obviously shown an aptitude for learning. Right. He's, he's gotten some degrees. We know uh, from some of his college records that he got he got good grades. And so part of this anti burglary unit was federal, state, local grants to further train these officers in burglary techniques. So it makes sense. You send that guy to get more of that training to help your town be better at stopping burglaries. Absolutely. I mean, he was kind of the natural for the job. Yeah. And, and if you're the Exeter Police Department, you know, you kind of feel like, wow, I have a gem here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> How do we keep this guy? Well, better give him a promotion, make him do something more important than walk in the streets. Yeah. Give him give him a couple extra dollars per month. You know, why not? Yeah. Right. 
And he ends up getting promoted to sergeant in early 1976. Yes. Now, in Exeter, how aware were you in 1975? We already talked about the ransacker not really making the Exeter Sun pages. But what about the September 11th um, murder of Claude Snelling or the December 10th McGowan shooting? Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of mention about anything with the ransacker. Again, um, Exeter and Visalia, they considered they're... 17 miles apart, which doesn't sound like a lot in today's standards, but back then, um, it really felt like a whole nother County, like a whole nother jurisdiction. Um, they didn't really talk to each other and the paper saw its role as only covering kind of the Exeter Farmersville, you know, there's no countywide coverage then that the Visalia newspaper covered Visalia, the Exeter paper covered Exeter and the Tulare paper covered Tulare and they didn't really cross each other's paths. So 1976, um, we know at this point that the Visalia ransacker went dormant after the December 1975 McGowan shooting. But back in Exeter, Joseph D'Angelo got promoted to sergeant. And then you guys had published, uh, the Exeter Sun published on May 11th, I believe, that everyone got funding for a second year of this anti-burglary unit. Yeah. Yeah, it was re up. They were doing such a good job. <laughs> yeah, how about of, that? Of catching, uh, catching the burglars who, uh, I mean, uh, you know, when you look at kind of the timeline and, and the, the type of burglaries that were happening in Exeter while D'Angelo was a cop, I mean, they are very similar to some of the ransacker cases. And in one case, they actually say the home was ransacked in, in the police report. Yeah, I, that one uh, particularly stuck out to me. I was like, you were, you were so close. Yeah, you didn't you didn't even know it. Yeah. Now, the, right. now the numbers the numbers that are listed in the article show this like huge improvement uh, in terms of like less crime that year. I often wonder were those numbers inclusive of was it all of Tulare County? Because I mean, obviously the ransacker stopped ransacking at that point for more than five months. So right there alone, those numbers should improve. Yeah, no, those weren't countywide numbers. Those were local local numbers between the uh, agencies participating in the in the task force, I believe. So, so yeah, they are doing a great job because I mean, w- what did the article say? Like ten percent or something that they that they went down? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it was ten percent. Awesome. So now we're back in seventy six, and something kind of dramatic happens uh, at the end of May in seventy six that probably was the last kind of drop in the bucket that made D'Angelo get out of town. What, what do we think that was? Um, so I think uh, basically that comes down to uh, they get a new police chief in um, Exeter and uh, and that that chief is coming from the Visalia Police Department, which is investigating the Visalia ransacker. So I think uh, D'Angelo basically comes to the conclusion that, you know, there there is no way for him to kind of continue to do as he's doing with with someone intimately involved with the Visalia Police Department right next to him every day. Because if you look at his career at this point in Exeter, he's doing really well. He just got funds re-upped, you know, so he knows he's on this on the special task force unit for another year. Yeah, why would he leave? He just got promoted to sergeant. He's doing great. Right. And then yet, you know, uh, end of May, Chief Fry resigns. Chief Bui gets installed as Visalia Patrol Chief. And then quickly thereafter, Joseph D'Angelo must have applied to Auburn because from what we found, the Auburn... A police application deadline was like the second week of June. So it goes pretty quickly that he's like, okay, I got to get out of here. Yeah. I think as soon as he heard that a Visalia guy was becoming the new chief of the Exeter Police Department, he was ready to go. So then uh, 1976, uh, June and July, we know he spends some time up in the Sacramento, Auburn area doing law enforcement training. And then he is hired completely full-time on the job with Auburn PD um, in August of 76 and leaves Exeter. Do you guys have any other mentions of him after that? No. Not that I found, no. So, yeah. So, his sister still uh, lives there. He still has some family there, but he and Sharon and, you know, pretty much leave the area and, and that's the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we know they made their home in Citrus Heights for a very long time. So, he was pretty... Uh, seems like kind of an established neighborhood and you know that yeah there's just no mention really of the family after that point I mean his sister's married but uh, we don't we don't see a lot of mentions of her or her family either yeah and really for I mean the the largest mentions of the police force are from you know are somehow revolve around the chief of police 
So, right. you know, if Chief Fry was to move on to Auburn, that would be a front page story. But when it's, you know, the task force guy in the 1970s, it kind of, you know, falls its way down uh, the editorial board. That makes sense. Thanks, Reggie Ellis and Paul Myers from the Sun Gazette. We're going to have you back on again next week as we examine the law enforcement career of suspected Golden State killer Joseph James D'Angelo. And coming up, we have former Auburn police chief Nick Willick, who remembers Joseph D'Angelo's time as a police officer in Auburn. have with us Nick Willock, former police chief of Auburn. Let me start by asking, Chief Nick, what was your first reaction to hearing your former employee, Joseph D'Angelo, was arrested as the accused Golden State Killer? It was shocking and surprising that he was perpetrating these crimes, these horrendous crimes, while he was working at the Auburn Police Department. Okay, so when did you first meet Joseph D'Angelo? I had to be in the summer of uh, 1976. He had been hired at the police department. And um, after he was hired, I, I probably met him in the office or somewhere. Now, D'Angelo has an injury to his hand. Was that ever explained? Joe D'Angelo had a uh, missing end of one of his fingers. And uh, he said that he had lost that uh in Vietnam, in uh, a situation where he ran his hand through a, a planer while they were doing damage control on the ship he was serving on. Did that affect his job at all? No. What did he share about his background? Uh, Joe was married, uh, recently married. I met her. She didn't come around the police department much. Uh, I can't remember her ever being at the police department. A lot of people, including Paul Holes, wonder how D'Angelo could have had the time to commit these crimes he's accused of committing. So let's talk about what he actually did as an Auburn patrol officer. Joe D'Angelo in the Auburn police department was a patrolman. As is typical uh, on a small department, at least our department at that time, that the new officers would come and they would work a relief schedule, meaning that their schedule would change from week to week. Uh, If someone was on vacation, that relief person, and usually we had at least two relief officers, that relief officer would fill in for him. And then, uh, you know, if someone got injured, if, if someone was on sick leave, he would fill in for that officer. So his shifts were changing from week to week. So as a relief officer, he didn't have a regular schedule. Um, How long before he would have been moved off the relief schedule? Typically, uh, officers would be on the relief schedule for approximately two years. Sometimes it'd be faster, sometimes it would be longer. But typically, it was a two-year duty. Got it. So we know the East Area Rapist was committing crimes throughout the week, at night or in the early morning. But we also know he must have done a ton of surveillance, uh, staking out potential victims, breaking in and scouting out locations, a ton of work. How many hours was D'Angelo working in Auburn? Eight-hour shifts, five days a week, eight hours a day. Was that day or night? We run three shifts at that time. We had a day shift, a swing shift, and a graveyard. How far is Auburn exactly from Sacramento? To drive from Auburn to Sacramento is a 35, 40-mile drive. Probably take 40, 45 minutes one way. Could D'Angelo have left the area while on duty? It would have been extremely difficult for him to leave the city of Auburn while he was on duty, the sergeant would have immediately known it because we were talking to each other all the time. Anytime you got out of the patrol car to check an open door or a a suspicious circumstance, the other officer backed you up. And I mean, it was expected because that's what you had. That was your, your safety net. I can't think of any situation where he could have left the city while he was on patrol and it not be detected. It was just the way the operations went, that if he was missing for five minutes or 10 minutes, the sergeant would have known. So if Joseph D'Angelo was committing these East Area rapist crimes, he's doing all of this off the clock. Driving back and forth would take, we said, about one to two hours a night just to and from Sacramento. But once the East Area rapist starts attacking in Modesto, Davis, Contra Costa County, we're talking a much longer drive back and forth. Did Joseph D'Angelo ever show up to work tired? 
I never saw Joel where he would act real tired and or lacking of sleep. I never suspected that. Uh, it's difficult to imagine how he could do so much. He was working, but 40 hours a week, but, you know, the, he would have days off. Uh, he would have vacations, and uh, it's hard to believe that he, I mean, he must have been spending his whole life consumed by these evil acts that he was committing because he, obviously, he was married and uh, he had a job. Uh, so it, it's just hard to imagine him doing everything that he was doing. Now, in Auburn, how aware were you of the East Area Rapist? Even though the East Area Rapist wasn't hitting in Auburn, it was something that everybody was talking about. Uh, it was in the media. It was on the news. It was in the newspapers. Uh, it was something of concern in Auburn. I mean, it was only 33 miles away, and people were concerned. I mean, these were horrific acts that were occurring and uh, people were concerned. I mean, uh, people uh, were buying guns and, you know, asking for, you know, security checks and uh, other house because they were concerned about what was going on in Sacramento. Okay, so this information you're getting in from the Sacramento agencies, this is shared with the Auburn patrol officers. Typically, there would be a, a folder that was maintained of these bulletins, and officers were were asked to review them and be aware of what was happening in surrounding jurisdictions. So if that person or the suspect or we had crimes similar, they would know and be able to uh, you know, pass the information along to the other departments. And Joseph D'Angelo had access to these bulletins and composites. Yes. Yes, he had access. Joe D'Angelo, like all the other officers, had access to these bulletins that uh, other departments would send our department asking for information and details of crimes that were occurring in their jurisdictions. Did you ever hear Joe D'Angelo or anybody within the department mention Joe D'Angelo talking about the East Area Rapist? No, never. Now, you've seen the composites then and now. How do you think they compare to Joe D'Angelo? The composites of the uh, what were potentially the East Area Rapists were, were different. I mean, a lot of them, they were clean-shaven. Uh, they had long hair, full heads of hair. Uh, they didn't look like Joe D'Angelo. These composites, though, you know, are were just possibles. You know, people uh, uh, seen in the area who uh, seemed out of place. So they weren't actual drawings of the stereo rapists. They were just potentials. And um, probably that was a bit misleading because um, none of them were the stereo rapists. I only remember him with a mustache. I don't remember him without a mustache. Okay, after the only mustache composite was released, uh, after the Maggiore murders, the East Area Rapists stopped attacking in Sacramento and moved further south and then west to the East Bay. Uh, I guess having access to those bulletins would have been an advantage to the East Area Rapist. I think Joel, as a police officer, uh, probably used his training uh, as a police officer to protect himself from detection. You know, as he was an academy graduate, he had a BA degree in criminal justice. He knew the investigative techniques that departments were using at that time. You know, how they investigate a rape case, uh, what type of evidence are they collecting. He would have been knowledgeable of that because of his training and education. So during the East Area Rapist crime spree in Northern California from 76 to 1979, Joe D'Angelo is working for you in Auburn. We know the last known East Area Rapist attack in Northern California was in July of 1979, and then the East Area Rapist went dormant. What do you know happened to Joseph D'Angelo in July of 1979? In uh, July of 1979, we received a call from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department that one of our officers, Officer Joe D'Angelo, had been arrested for shoplifting in the Citrus Heights area 
he had been caught uh, trying to steal a hammer and dog repellent spray. He had apparently uh, hid those items on his person under his shirt and his waistband of his pants and tried to leave the store without paying for it. He was had been detected by one of the employees who stopped him and detained him and contacted the Sacramento Sheriff's Department who responded and issued him a citation for the shoplifting. So they didn't take him down to the jail. They only issued a citation. I believe that to be true. Typically, you would issue a citation at the scene. But they did call you. How did they know he was a police officer in Auburn? Well, you could do a record check and find that out. Maybe he even identified himself as a police officer at the time, but they did know he was a police officer and would be typical protocol. They contacted our agency to tell us that he had been arrested. Was he in uniform at the time? No, he wasn't. It was his days off and he was in uh, wearing civilian clothes when he was arrested. What were you told about how he reacted at the time? He uh, apparently tried to escape. Uh, I think the words were he panicked and was trying to escape to the point where they actually had to secure him to a chair until the sheriff's department got there. And what were your first thoughts when you heard this? You know, anytime an officer is arrested, you know, particularly your own department, one of your, you know, officer is arrested, there's a lot of shock. I mean, I was surprised. I was uh, disappointed, you know, that an officer would do something like that. You know, I'm not naive enough to know that, you know, officers aren't human beings, but it's not something you ever want. And uh, we were quite surprised, you know, once I heard. And of course, we immediately started an internal affairs investigation into the matter. So what was that process like? The lieutenant would have contacted him and notified him that he was under investigation uh, for the for the shoplifting. He was immediately suspended from the force. The process took several weeks and uh, he had opportunities to meet with us. He did not meet with us. He didn't want to meet and talk to the lieutenant about the situation. Joe had uh, hired an attorney. He had hired an attorney that handled uh, the uh, discipline portion of it. He also had hired an attorney to handle the criminal aspects of it. He pled not guilty to the shoplifting and asked for a jury trial. There are several newspaper reports for this as well, but how did it all end up playing out for you? He wasn't talking to us, and I think uh, what his plan was, was that he was going to plead uh, not guilty, have a jury trial, which he did have a jury trial. As a matter of fact, he even testified that it was a mistake, that he wasn't guilty, but the jury still returned a guilty verdict. And uh, after that return, he had requested an appeal of my disciplinary action to the city personnel board. After he was found guilty of the shoplifting, he dropped the appeal. And what's the timeline of this? The jury trial was in October and his personnel hearing date was set for the 1st of November and uh, he elected not to have the personnel hearing. We've talked about an incident where D'Angelo allegedly threatened you during this process of his termination. Tell us about that. I believe it was September. I had uh, purchased a new house, and I had just moved into that house. And I woke up one morning, and my daughter, who at the time was... uh, I guess about three, four years old, was laying on the floor sleeping. And I, you know, I got up and I said, what are you doing on the floor? And she said, well, I got scared last night. And I, I said, well, what happened? What's, what scared you? And she said, well, I woke up. There was a light being shined in my bedroom window and it scared me. And um, at the time, you know, she, at that age, um, Kids have a lot of nightmares, but I still went out and I looked around the house. We just moved into the house and the house had no landscaping. It was all bare dirt, just clean dirt. And 
In looking around the house, walking around the house, I noticed a number of footprints leading up to the windows and door of the house. But the house was still basically under construction. Matter of fact, a day or so before, they had came to the house and put the screens on the house. I thought, well, who knows what it was. Yeah, it's a new subdivision. Uh, maybe someone was just looking around to see if someone had moved in. We didn't have uh, curtains on the windows or anything. So I didn't really know, you know, what to think of it. And this wasn't a recurring event? No, that was the only time that it happened. It was uh, a month, month and a half later when I was contacted by our workers' comp fund investigator who told me that Joe had filed a claim. I knew he had filed a claim. He filed a claim for stress. He said the stress of the job, the stress of having me as his boss had caused him to commit the shoplift. He blamed me for all of his his problems, that he uh, had gone to my house to try to find me and to uh, kill me. However, he could not find my bedroom. I was very concerned, obviously, but again, I still just didn't believe that he had actually done it. I thought it was uh, a lie to get workers' comp. I just didn't see him as a person that go out and kill somebody. Scary. My daughter was more traumatized than I even knew over this incident. She still remembers it. When I told her that uh, Joe had been arrested and that he was arrested, you know, as being the the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, uh, she started crying. And she was, uh, she said, you don't know how much that bothered me my whole life. And she told me how she would crawl at night into the, the bathroom. She never told me this at the time. I wish she would have. She never did. I asked her why she didn't tell me. She says, well, she didn't know. So, so yeah, it, it was very personal for her. That scared her very much. Out of curiosity, did the workers' comp claim go anywhere? I really don't know. You'd think I would know that, but I always assumed that he didn't get anything. I thought it was a ploy, you know, to get money from the city. It was very common in those days for officers that when they were fired or disciplined to get workers' comp as a result of that. And I I thought that that's what he had done. He was just trying to get something or trying to strike back at me for, for firing him. And I guess it could still be that. Looking back on it now, I you know, I wish I would have taken it a little more serious. Uh, or, or I should say I probably should have, but... It just didn't seem real. I I really didn't believe he was a threat. I really didn't think of Joe D'Angelo until, you know, at the beginning of the year when I received a call from Paul Holes and uh, who asked me some questions about Joe D'Angelo. After all this, has your perspective changed? Has the arrest changed your life in any way? I've always been a person that tries to find good in people. And um, I've always believed that there's good in everybody. But with Joe D'Angelo, everything I know now, I don't know if that's true anymore. I don't know what good he brought to life. All I can see is evil. And probably the fact that he has committed these crimes has probably changed my view on humanity. That uh, people are really evil sometimes and there's... No good in them at all. Thank you to former Auburn Chief of Police Nick Willock. And coming up, we're going to go back to our interview with Paul Holes and pick up where Joseph James D'Angelo left off in Auburn. Okay, we're going to pick back up our interview with Paul Holes as we discuss Joseph James D'Angelo's time in Auburn. Now, Paul, we talked a lot in the past about the aborted Danville attack in July of 1979. Attack number 50, the last known East Area rapist attack in Northern California. Just to catch people up, the husband was a light sleeper. He surprised the East Area rapist who had to abort the attack. Now, before the identification of Joseph D'Angelo as a suspected Golden State killer, there were a few theories as to why the East Area rapist had stopped. Uh, Like maybe he had been spooked. What did you think at the time? 
Well, you know, at the time, uh, you know, we, we, he is confronted by that mail uh, in Danville, uh, July 19, uh, 1979. And then we have nothing else in Northern California after that. He shows up down in Goleta, Santa Barbara in October of 79. Um, you know, I, my personal thought was, is that something is taking him down to Southern California. And I really thought that it was going to be his job. I did not feel that he got spooked as a result of the, the Danville attack. I thought his movements through Northern California were based on his job, and then ultimately his job took him down to Southern California. And while he's away from his home base down there, he's deciding that he's going to to continue his attacks and ultimately escalate to the homicides. Um you know, when you start looking at D'Angelo and his timeline, this gets very interesting because, you know, he ends up getting arrested by Sac Sheriff's Office for shoplifting in that same month. Yeah, like two weeks later. Two weeks later. You know, so now he's been arrested by the, the primary agency that's looking for him as the East Area Rapist. Uh, additionally, he is now undergoing an internal affairs investigation by his his agency, Auburn Police Department. So the pressure is really stepping up on him. And so you can see at this point, he is now in a tough spot where he can't risk going out and continuing to offend while he's up in Northern California. He's got some bigger issues, some personal issues that he's having to deal with. Um, so these stressors are adding up. It gets very interesting that when you take a look at the sequence of him being arrested, and then ultimately the IA uh, results in him being terminated by Auburn Police Department, that it, he now goes down to Goleta for some reason down there, attempts an attack on a couple that goes sideways on him. But then after that attack, he's all the way back up in Sacramento court, basically being convicted of that shoplifting. That's like a six, seven hour drive, right? That's right. So he's he's going down to Santa Barbara. Then he's coming all the way back up to be in court. And then we know two months later, he's going down to Santa Barbara. He's down in Santa Barbara again, killing Dr. Offerman and Dr. Manning. So this is showing, you know, with the knowing D'Angelo's movements, you know, what's happening happening to him is that he's still Sacramento based, but something. And I to this day do not know why he's in Santa Barbara at the end of '79, um, and I don't know if the active investigators have figured that out. I know they're still trying. So, but it's it's fascinating to see that kind of movement all the way across California to commit those attacks. And that's one of those things, you know, when I've assessed, okay, what, where was I right? Where was I wrong when I was looking at this as an unsolved case? You know, I really believe this guy is Sacramento based. That's his home base. And so this is showing me, okay, you know, I, I kind of, you know, with an educated guess, got that right. You got that right, this yeah. This guy was still coming up to Sacramento, even though he was already offending down in Southern California. But it's not even just the movement patterns. I mean, thinking about you've just lost your job. It's very public. It's all over the newspapers. Um, you know, you're being you got caught with some weird stuff that, you know, might have people look into you further. Um, you're about to go to a jury trial uh, where we know that Joseph D'Angelo even testified on his own behalf. And yet you make it down to Goleta you know, as the suspected Golden State killer, they're doing the aborted Goleta attack, then coming back up to the jury trial. It's just, it seems like you'd be preoccupied with your trial to to not drive six, seven hours away and commit another crime. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, one of the things that I really want to know is why was he down in Goleta in October of 79? You know, was he, because of the stress, you know, does, does he go to Santa Barbara just to vacation? Because we know it is a vacation spot. Or was there something else that he was into? You know, he's lost his job. He needs to start making money. He's got different skill sets outside of law enforcement, such as welding. Uh, you know, did he end up taking on uh, a security guard job type position that caused him to move around down to Goleta? At this point, I don't know. And I would be fascinated to find that out just so we can have a better 
understanding into how the you know the mind of, of D'Angelo worked during this this really critical point in his life. I mean, this guy spent his entire adult life up to that point in criminal justice and law enforcement type of uh, studies and activities. This was his identity, and it just got ripped away from him. That had to be a huge blow to his ego. Right. Now, what do we know about D'Angelo after he leaves Auburn? You know, not a lot. You know, what I know at this point, after he separates from Auburn PD, at some point, you know, down downstream in terms of dates, he ends up becoming uh, a truck mechanic and is, is, is working as a truck mechanic, I believe, down in Southern California for a period of time before he relocates back up to the Sacramento area where he continues that career. But I don't know much more than that. Yeah, you know, neither do we, obviously. I, I think that we do know that 10 murders are committed in Southern California by what was then known as the original Night Stalker, uh, also the Golden State Killer. We know D'Angelo had some family down here and you know, I mean, he spent some of his elementary school education down in Southern California. And we do know that his second daughter was born down here. So, yeah, so he ends up having three young daughters and taking a steady job as a mechanic back up in Sacramento and then starts living a seemingly normal life. How would you describe his last three decades before his arrest? Well, you know, I think and kind of going back to, you know, his age, you know, when he started offending as East Era Rapist. He's 30 years old. By the time of his last known attack, Janelle Cruz, May 5th, 1986, the guy's 40, 41 years old. You know, so you start to see that he's starting to get into that that older age range for a serial predator. And this is where you start to see men start to slow down a little bit. And as I, you know, mentioned multiple times, I think psychologically, after the Domingo Sanchez case, that he possibly had decided, I'm done. You know, Gregory Sanchez scared him, and he walked away from that going, I don't want to be caught or killed or hurt. And he stopped offending. And then for whatever reason, he ends up uh, running across uh, poor Janelle Cruz in 1986. So after that point, you know, he's now living his life. His offending, as far as we know, is, is behind him. But he most certainly is still identifying as the Golden State Killer. He's making phone calls to some of his previous victims, uh, you know, as late as in uh, 2001, when he calls, you know, victim number 14, 24 years after he attacked her. Uh, So he's still thinking about his crimes. He's still fantasizing about his crimes. And he's still following the media. And I can guarantee without knowing, I don't know anything for sure, but I can just guarantee just knowing this guy as an offender that likely he has seen just about every TV show that's ever been done on the East Area Rapist or the Golden State Killer, you know, up until the time he was arrested. He has seen our work. Well, that's creepy. Okay. (laughs) So so as you were putting together the puzzle of how D'Angelo's life lined up with the Golden State Killer crime spree, what stood out to you the most? Uh, you know, one of the, the the prime bits of information that we got early on is that he had a fiance uh, in 1970 named Bonnie. And, you know, we had uh, the Golden State Killer as he's raping a woman up in Davis in uh, July of 1978 that, you know, is, is sobbing, you know, as he's raping this woman and he's and he's crying out, I hate you, Bonnie. I hate you, Bonnie. So we always thought our offender had a Bonnie that was significant in his life. And this Bonnie that uh, he was engaged to, we could not find any record that they ever got married. So it looks like it was a relationship that went sideways. And it was at that point when I heard that and I thought, oh, he's got a Bonnie. He's down in Exeter (laughs) when Visalia is going on. He's moving up to Auburn and he's got these connections to the Sacramento area. Um, That's when... D'Angelo was, we need to get a DNA sample from this guy. And that's when I drove up to his house. That's amazing. Well, thanks so much for talking us through this. We're going to get to the house story in a bit. And uh, this was all super fascinating. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Amazing. God, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Coming up next week, the two wildly different pictures of Joseph James D'Angelo as a police officer, the rising star in Exeter and the subpar cop in Auburn. 
We'll hear more from D'Angelo's former boss, retired Auburn Police Chief Nick Willick, on D'Angelo's performance with Auburn Police Force, and now retired Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes also returns to offer some insight into how D'Angelo may have gone from good cop to bad cop in such a short time period. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, you can watch the entire Unmasking a Killer documentary series on demand with CNN Go. And the entire companion podcast series, including these new episodes, is also available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joe Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for listening.